If you're going to take biblical Christianity seriously, you cannot escape the cross where Jesus died. Jesus' death on a cross outside Jerusalem in 30 AD was grisly, it was gruesome, and therefore we might be inclined to sort of push it to the periphery of what we think Christianity is about. But if we're going to be true to biblical Christianity, we can't do that. Because according to the Bible, Jesus' death on the cross is not just another fact about his life. It's not a sideline event to the main game of Christianity. If you take the New Testament seriously, Jesus' death on the cross was a high point of all that he set out to achieve. And it's a focal point of the Christian faith. For biblical Christianity, there's no escaping the cross. In fact, the cross is central. You can see it there on your outline in page 7 in your booklet. The New Testament makes the cross of Jesus a focal point for Christian praise, for Christian preaching, and for Christian practice. As a focus for Christian praise, you can see they're part of the vision John is given in Revelation 5. Let me read it for you. John says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered Myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands singing with full voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And As you read through that chapter, they're singing to a lamb that is alive but looks like it's been slain. It's a, it's a picture of Jesus. As Christians, we sing, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered. We praise this Jesus who died. And we're going to do that again and again this week here at Ancon. But Jesus' cross is also the focus of Christian preaching. You can see there how Paul put it when writing to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, for Jews demand signs, Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. The cross of Jesus has never been an easy message to proclaim because it's never been a message that makes a lot of sense to those who don't really know the true God. Who's going to preach about a guy who died a criminal's death in an obscure corner of the Middle East and then try to mount the case that this guy is in fact the king of all kings and the lord of all lords? That's just crazy. But the Apostle Paul said, no, this is who we proclaim. Jesus the Christ and him crucified. In fact, as you can see there a bit later in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul lists the death of Jesus as one of the crucial points in his summary of the gospel, God's great good news announcement that's now preached to all the nations of the world. Have a look there in your book at 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I proclaim to you which in turn you received and in which you stand, through which also you are being saved if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures." Do you notice there, it's not just that Jesus' death has a central place in Paul's preaching. In verse 2 he says, by holding firm to this message, we are being saved. 
The reason Jesus' cross is central in Christian preaching is because holding to this message of the cross is key to our salvation. If we walk away from this gospel that proclaims the death of Jesus for our sins and instead we turn to some other Christian gospel, then we forfeit our very salvation. And so it's no surprise then to find that Jesus' death is the focus of Christian practice as well, by which I mean the two distinctive Christian practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, Jesus told his first disciples to go and make more disciples and to baptise them. That's a symbolic washing with water as a public sign of committing yourself to Jesus. Now, the way it was usually done was by full immersion. You would find yourself a river, a lake, a jacuzzi, whatever, and you would dunk down under the water and come back up again. That going down and up again was meant to symbolise your participation in Jesus' death and his resurrection. The very act of baptism pointed in part to Jesus' death. You see how Paul describes it there in Romans 6.3? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? And similarly, what we call the Lord's Supper or Communion was a meal instituted by Jesus and given to his disciples as a way of remembering the significance of Jesus' death. So like baptism, it's an action that actually points somewhere else. The meal points to what Jesus did at the cross. And Paul says when we celebrate this particular meal, we're proclaiming Jesus' death because that's what the meal points to. Have a look there, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That reference to blood is just another way of talking about his death. Do this, he says, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus' death on this cross has this central place in Christian life. It's the focus of Christian praise. It's at the heart of the Christian message. And it's the focus of these two distinctive Christian practices. In fact, so central is the cross that you can see on your page there, P.T. Forsyth, a, a, a theologian from the early 20th century, said, you do not understand Christ till you understand his cross. So if you don't work out the significance of Jesus' death, you will never really understand Jesus at all. It's that central to who he is. But that's not all. Leon Morris, you can see there, put it like this. He said, the cross is at the heart of the Christian way. This is the way of salvation and it's the way of Christian living. The cross is, of Jesus is key to our salvation. We saw that already in 1 Corinthians 15, but it's also the key to Christian living. The cross is central to how you live as a Christian each and every day. If you don't get the cross, then you don't get our salvation and you won't really get how to live as a follower of Jesus. 
So that's why spending five days together reading the Bible, thinking about the cross of Jesus is so valuable. It's going to take us to the very heart of who Jesus is, how we are saved, and how to live as his disciples in the world. That's why it's so good that you have made the effort to be here for this week. Now, just a sort of uh, a comment. If, if you're here this week and you're still just checking out the Christian faith, you haven't yet made a commitment to be a follower of Jesus, and if you've got some questions that you want answered about Jesus, I'd love to chat with you this week. And every week uh, at Ancon, at lunchtime, I always will be sitting in that back far left-hand table. And if you're still just checking out the Christian faith, you're not yet a Christian, but you have some questions, come and speak with me at lunchtime. And if you're already a Christian, I'd ask you, don't come and speak to me at lunchtime. I want that time to be for those who've got questions, who want to check out more about the Christian faith. Come along, chat with me. I'm very friendly, really. Bring a a friend along with you, for moral support, if you like, and let's talk about what you think about Jesus and what you're learning this week. Now, if you are a Christian and you've got other questions, I'm available breakfast, I'm available dinner, you can always come and ask me questions and uh, make sure you come along to the question times after the evening sessions. Now, we've seen just a little bit there about how the New Testament puts the cross of Jesus in central place in the Christian life, but the centrality of the cross is often under attack, not just from the non-Christian world, but also from the theologically liberal sections of the church. Now, when I say theological liberalism, I'm not talking about economic liberalism or political liberalism. We're not talking about Tony Abbott and the Australian Liberal Party. I'm talking about those who want to claim to be Christian but don't want to put the Bible as the ultimate authority. Theological liberalism tends to reject parts of what the New Testament teaches us about the cross of Jesus. It wants to distance itself from some of the New Testament teaching, particularly aspects of the centrality of Jesus' death to our salvation. Now, there's there's actually a good example of this in the EU and the AFES's own history, in our heritage. You see, well before the EU was established at Sydney Uni in in 1930, there was a similar group at Cambridge University in England known as the Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union, or KICU for short. You think that's weird? The group at Oxford was called the OICU. The KICU had formerly been part of what was known as the National Student Christian Movement in the UK. But due to theological differences, the KICU had broken away from the SCM, the Student Christian Movement. So in 1919, discussions were taking place between the KICU and the SCM over whether the KICU would reaffiliate with the National Movement. Now, Norman Grubb was one of the students representing the KICU in that meeting. And you can see there on your page his record of the key point in the discussion. He says, after an hour's conversation, which got us nowhere, one direct and vital question was put. Does the SCM consider the atoning blood of Jesus Christ as the central point of their message? And the answer was given. No, not as central, although it is given a place in our teaching. 
That settled the matter. For we explained to them at once that the atoning blood was so much the heart of our message that we could never join with the movement which gave it any lesser place. The centrality of the cross and its place in our atonement before God. That was the key issue. Now, these were university students. These were not professors of theology. They weren't church pastors. They weren't Bible teachers. These were uni students, like you, asking the hard questions of the importance of the cross and making a stand on it. And it proved to be a decisive moment. That same year, the KIKU then would help form an alternative national body to the increasingly liberal SCM. They formed the InterVarsity Fellowship of Evangelical Students, which was known as the IVF. And it was the IVF that, less than 10 years later, sent out a young medical graduate, Howard Guinness, to help start similar evangelical uni groups across the world, including at Sydney Uni in 1930. And that is why the EU has a very specific statement about the centrality of the cross in its doctrinal basis. Because making a stand on the centrality of the cross against all the tides of unbelief and theological liberalism, that is part of our heritage. It's part of our DNA. And you can see it from the statement from the doctrinal basis which is there on your page. The SUEU upholds the fundamental truths of Christianity, including... Point four, redemption from the guilt, penalty and power of sin only through the sacrificial death as our representative and substitute of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And you'll find a similar statement in the doctrinal basis of the AFES, the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, of which the EU and the Con Christian Group, anyone here from the Con? Nice of which we are all together part, and also of the IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. So my point is, the centrality of the cross to his mission, to our salvation, and to Christian living has always been under attack. Under the power of God, it was left to a bunch of uni students at Cambridge University in their own day to make a stand for the centrality of the cross as representing the true biblical teaching on these things. And now it's going to be up to you to do that. It might be the non-Christian world rubbishing the grisly heart of the cross, or it might be other Christian groups on campus that want to move the cross to the side, or maybe it will even be a church that you attend that wants to add something as necessary for your salvation to what Christ has done at the cross, or suggest in some way that Jesus' death is not entirely sufficient for your salvation. The centrality and sufficiency of Jesus' cross has always been under attack, again and again for the last 2,000 years, and it falls to every generation of evangelicals to know what the Bible says and to be ready and equipped to defend it. So my hope is that this week, not only will you love Jesus and our Heavenly Father more by coming again to the cross, but that you'll be better able and ready to take a stand for its centrality and its sufficiency. Now tonight, we'll come to the events surrounding Jesus' death. But this morning, what we're going to do is look at the framework the Bible gives for understanding the cross. And we're going to do that 
by delving back into the Old Testament and see how the cross was foreshadowed in different ways in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, the place we're going to start is with the very first chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2 and the biblical account of creation. Now, if you've been around Christian things for a long time and you know your Old Testament a fair bit, you might be saying, well, why why are you starting there? I mean, shouldn't you go to the more famous sort of cross in the Old Testament type passages, the suffering servant or the high priest? Yes, well, we'll get to them soon. But if you actually jump in with them, you're really jumping in halfway through the story. You're not yet looking at the whole of the picture. You're missing the big frame, actually, in which all those other pictures sit. That's why we have to push back even further to God's account of creation, because that is where the real story starts that climaxes in Jesus' cross. So one of the things that Genesis 1 and 2 do for us is paint a picture of God's good intention for us as his creatures. Here's a picture, if you like, of how God created life, our life, to be. And you can summarise it in a particular way. I'm going to choose to summarise it as God's people, in God's place, enjoying God's presence, doing God's project with God's provision. Don't worry, we're going to go through all that. So let me show you briefly each one, but you need to open up your Bible to Genesis 1 and 2. So let's open up our Bibles to Genesis 1 and 2. Maybe you can look on with the person next to you. Let's go through that little summary I just gave you. First of all, God's people. Have a look there at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. In God's account of creation, we read there, so God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God creates humanity in his own image and notice we're created in relationship. We're in relationship with one another, we're created male and female, but also in relationship with him. In fact, the very next verse, God speaks to the man and the woman and gives them particular instructions to follow. We're created to be in a relationship with God and with one another that has a particular shape and it's determined by God himself. So God's people meeting in God's place. Jump ahead then to Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I'll read there. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the Lord puts humanity in a place of his own design. It's the Lord God, we read, who planted this garden in Eden. And it's a place beautifully designed for humanity. God causes trees to grow out of the ground that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. God's people in God's place. Thirdly, enjoying God's presence. If you jump further ahead to chapter 3, you can see this garden was a place where God himself would be present. Have a look at chapter 3, verses uh, 8 to 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, 
Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now the implication is that you, the man and the woman, would be enjoying God's presence face to face in the garden. That was the point. That was God's good intention, that his creatures would enjoy his presence in the place of his design. But something here has gone tragically wrong. We'll come to that in a moment. Fourth thing to notice, the man and the woman are working in God's project. The man and the woman, and presumably then their kids, weren't supposed to just swan around in Eden like some perpetual honeymoon. They had a task to do, a God-given job to do. What was that? Well, they're to rule over God's world for him. They're to fill it with descendants and to take care of God's creation to enhance its fruitfulness. You can see this in the first instructions God gives to the man and the woman in Genesis 1.28. You have a look there. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there's the command, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. And then if you jump forward to chapter 2, verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So here's the project God gives them. Fill the earth with descendants, subdue the earth, rule over it, work it, and care for it to enhance its fruitfulness. And finally, they're to do all this with God's provision. We've already noted God provided every tree in the garden that was pleasing to the eye and good for food. And you see in Genesis 2 verse 9, God provided a special tree in the garden, the tree of life. Now it's not until the end of chapter 3 that we're told the purpose of the tree of life but so that the man and the woman and their children can live forever. Have a look at Genesis 3, verse 22. Uh, In response to humanity's disobedience, we're told, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God's original good intention was not that we die, was not that we return to dust. God's good creation intention was that we might live forever. He provides the tree of life, even for our mortality, he provides. So here's God's good intention for us as his creatures. We'd be his people in his place, enjoying his presence, working at his project, with his gracious provision. It's a good picture, isn't it? It's life with meaning, in meaningful relationships, with meaningful work to do, enjoying God's bountiful and abundant provision in a wonderfully, wonderful situation that's endlessly rich and rewarding and relationally satisfying and, and which knows no end. What a glorious state of affairs is pictured for us here. Wouldn't it be great if that's what characterised our life now? I mean, we do still get glimpses of it, don't we? But it's only glimpses, really. 
of just how good it was meant to be. And it's certainly not endless, is it? What's gone wrong? If this is God's good intention for our life, why is my life not like this? Well, the tragic answer comes in the next chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Now, you may well know the story. Amidst all of his generous provision, the Lord God gave the man, the woman, a particular command. Don't eat of this particular tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was a very good reason for that instruction. If you've got your Bible there, listen to his instruction in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now that's no small consequence, is it? You will certainly die. Don't stick the fork in the PowerPoint. You will certainly die. Don't jump in front of the 413 bus. You will certainly die. Actually, not so certain, because it often runs late, so you may not. But <laughs> you get the. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will certainly die. And death means the end of everything that the Lord God has in store for his people, right? It's going to be the end of life in his place, enjoying his presence and his provision, working at his project. So certain death is a massive consequence. In fact, it's the biggest consequence, really, that you could have. It's the end of the whole thing. So you'd think that would be a fairly good reason, wouldn't you, for the man and woman to enjoy all the other trees that God's provided and leave that tree alone. Just listen to what the Lord God has to say. That's, that's all. It's just simple. Just do it. Except there's another voice in the garden. Have a look at Genesis 3, 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Here's the other voice in the garden. It's not the voice of the Lord God, the one who had made the whole heavens and earth by the power of his word. It's not the, not the voice of the, guy who'd, the, the God who created the man and the woman, who created this beautiful garden for them to enjoy in his presence. It's not his voice. It's a voice that casts doubt on the truthfulness of God's word. It's a voice that casts dispersion over God's character, claiming that he doesn't give you these instructions for your good. Well, which voice will they listen to? Which voice would you listen to? And see, 
here's the essence of our problem as humanity. We know God's decree. We, we hear God's command and his warning, but we have hard hearts and we listen to lesser voices even when they cast dispersions on God's good word to us. We decide we know better and we reject God's loving word to us. We decide his command is not good. We decide his warning is not serious. We take matters into our own hand or we decide we just don't care and we go for it. We do it anyway. That's what the Bible calls sin. Have a look further on there, still in Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then it all starts to unravel. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The consequences of sin strike immediately and it starts with shame and broken relationships. For the first time, they feel shame in each other's presence, so they have to cover and hide themselves. There's a degeneration in their relationship as husband and wife. As we read on in chapter 3, all of God's good intentions for them, which we saw pictured in, in chapters 1 and 2, all of those good intentions are compromised. So instead of being God's people, now they are not God's people. They're meant to be God's people, those who listen to his voice because he is their God and they are his people, but now whose voice have they listened to? The serpents. They've chosen to be the people of the evil one. They've made themselves God's enemies, those who reject his word and so reject him. And as a consequence, they're no longer in God's place. At the end of chapter 3, verses 23-24, the Lord God banishes the man and the woman from the garden. He himself drives the man and the woman out and prevents them from returning. So by rejecting God and his word, they've seen themselves ejected from God's place. They're now hiding from God's presence. We read that early in chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, as the Lord God walks through the garden. The man and the woman hide themselves from him. Why? Well, the man says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. But hang on, that's never been a problem before. But now because of sin, there's a lack of openness with God. The man is afraid to come into God's presence. It's the original loss of innocence because they are no longer innocent. They know evil now. They are guilty now. And so they hide themselves from the holy God who cannot stand to look on evil. So the face-to-face -face communion that they had with God is gone. Now they hide in their guilt and their shame. What's more, they're now going to be toiling with pain in God's project. So this sin doesn't just affect their relationship with God and with each other, it affects their experience in the project God has given them to do. Remember, their task was to fill the earth with descendants and to work and care for creation. 
Both those tasks are now filled with pain as a consequence of their sin. Have a look, Genesis 3, verses 16 to 18. To the woman, the Lord God said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. The key word in that whole section is pain. Their experience of the God-given project of filling the earth and caring for it is going to be now filled with pain. Painful childbirth, painful toiling of the ground. But also now, it is going to be without God's provision of the tree of life. God's still going to provide for Adam and Eve, despite the fact they've rejected him. That's just the loving, gracious, merciful God that he is. He provides food and clothes for them, but he is the God of truth. He said that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would certainly die. And despite the lies of the serpent, that is indeed the case. They're banished from the garden, cut off from the tree of life, and so death is now inevitable. You can see how the Lord God describes it to the man in chapter 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, this is critical for understanding everything that's going to come for the rest of the week. What sin deserves, God's just and fair response to sin, is death. As the Apostle Paul put it, maybe a bit more poetically, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. That is when sin gets what it is owed, what sin deserves and what God said it would always be the consequence of sin, is death. So as a result of their sin, all of God's good intentions for his creatures have now been radically, tragically compromised. Three brief reflections on this. First of all, you may well be thinking, How stupid were Adam and Eve? They heard God's loving command, they knew the consequence, and they just went ahead anyway. How stupid is that? But you know, I'm not much better, actually. Are you? How many times in my life have I thought, This is not right. This is not going to be helpful. I know this is not what God wants me to do. And then I've gone ahead and done it anyway. Now, by God's grace and the work of his spirit in me, I don't reject his word as often as I might, but I am still constantly reaching out to take that fruit and to sink my teeth into it in all sorts of ways. See, this is not just the story of Adam and Eve and their monumental failure. It's all of our failure. This is your story and mine. That's why God has given it to us, so that we can understand not just life as we find it, 
but so that we can understand the hard heart, the rebellious mind that is in all of us descended from that first couple. Second reflection is this. If you've ever wondered why the world is so stuffed up, here's the reason. This is God's answer to the cry of our heart when we cry out, why? When relationships break down, why? When life is hard and a struggle, why? When pain overwhelms, when God feels distant, when we are overcome by shame and guilt, why? When death takes one we love, when death comes to take us, why? Here is God's answer. It's because of the tragic, outrageous immorality of human sin. It's because of our native hostility and rejection of the God who loved us and made us, and it's our stubborn refusal to live his way. Now, by his grace, we still see many glimpses of his good creation intentions for us, but the mess, the junk, the garbage and pain in our lives, that is a consequence of our sin together. But there's a third reflection. This is only the beginning of the account that God has given us in the Bible. We've only looked at Genesis 1, 2 and 3. This is not the end. If this were the end of the matter, it would be a thoroughly depressing affair. But this is just the beginning. The entire rest of the Bible and indeed the entirety of human history is God's solution to our terrible predicament. See, God does not rejoice in what we humans have brought on ourselves. He is a God of love and mercy. He wants to see his good intentions for humanity brought to reality. And the rest of the Bible is the account of what God did next of how he acts to fulfill his good purposes for us, even his rebellious creatures. And it's that great story of what God did next that climaxes in the cross of Jesus. That's why we had to go back and start with creation, because ultimately the cross of Jesus is God's way of re-establishing his good creation purposes for all of us. So before we jump to Jesus' cross, which is where we'll be focusing the rest of the week, we need to see how God gets us from Genesis 3 through to Jesus' death thousands of years later. Now, I'm going to keep this ridiculously brief. Point three, the rest of the Bible and human history. God acts to fulfill his good purposes. So right at the beginning, still in Genesis 3, there's a very significant moment when the Lord God indicates that something will be done about this terrible situation. It's in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and it's there on your page. It's sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium, which is just fancy Latin, right, for first gospel. It's the first mention or announcement of God's good news. Have a look there, Genesis 3. The Lord God said to the serpent... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. 
He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is much, much more than a statement about bushwalking, right? About the interaction between humans and snakes. This is a promise that one day there will be a showdown. A showdown between a descendant of Eve and the serpent. And it will be a showdown with a certain outcome because whilst the serpent will strike the man's heel, this man will strike or crush the serpent's head. It will be the end of the road for the serpent, for the deceiver, for the evil one who is constantly trying to lead humanity astray. We have here God's promise, see, to get rid of the problem. Well, how's he going to do that? It's not clear in Genesis 3. But as we move forward in the scriptures, we see God's plan move into action. Point B, how does God then move his plan forward? He does it by establishing a series of covenants. A covenant is just a solemn commitment guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by the parties involved. Now, marriage would be a good example of a human covenant. When Jenny and I got married nearly 20 years ago, we committed together to keep the promises of love and faithfulness that we made in the marriage service to each other. And that entails different commitments from each of us as part of that marriage covenant. Well, God puts his plan to fulfill his creation purposes for the world into action by a series of covenants. You can see them there listed in the diagram. There's covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses and the nation of Israel, and then Israel's king, King David. I'm going to leave you to look up the details of those covenants later, but the thing to note is that it's not really a series of unrelated covenants. They really are refinements or extra layers that build on top of each other as God seeks to move his purposes forward through human history. Now, to understand how the cross features in that big story, we need to focus in more closely on three key figures within this Old Testament story as he moves it forward. So, three shadowy figures and a promise. First of all, the high priest and his sacrifice. As part of the covenant the Lord God establishes with Moses and the nation of Israel, God instructs them to build a tabernacle, a large mobile tent with a series of concentric enclosures. You'll look at this in your faculty times where we're looking at the book of Hebrews. Uh, In the innermost section of the tabernacle, which was called the Holy of Holies, there the Lord God symbolically took up residence amongst his people. Now, remember this. Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence, weren't they, in the Garden of Eden? But in the tabernacle, God comes back to dwell amongst his people. Can you see there, there's a a moment, a movement back towards recapturing something that was lost back in Genesis 3. God is coming back and recovering his presence amongst his people. But the only person who ever got to go into God's presence in that Holy of Holies was the high priest, And even then, he only got to go in once a year on what was known as the Day of Atonement. And he only got to do that after he had offered sacrifices to deal with the problem of their sin. Now, you're going to look at much more at that in Faculty Times where we look at the book of Hebrews. I'm going to leave it for there. But just notice you can see a glimpse of God starting to fulfill his original good purposes for his creatures of living out in their presence here. Well, the second shadowy figure that we need to note is the victorious king or Messiah and his throne. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, the Lord God establishes a covenant with the king of Israel. 
King David, promising that one of his descendants will occupy the throne forever. That becomes a really important promise for the nation of Israel. They always look for the day when God will fulfill his covenant promise to David and establish one of his descendants as the permanent king or anointed one or Christ. And one of the things that God promises to do through this Christ king would be to defeat all the enemies of God. And you can see that in places like Psalm 110. Here again, though, see, is part of God's solution to the problems we saw in Genesis 3. How is God going to get rid of the evil one, the serpent? Who will crush his head? Well, here God's promising one day to send his Christ, who will defeat all of God's enemies, presumably including the serpent himself. It'll be one of David's descendants, but which one will it be? And how will he crush the serpent and defeat all the enemies of God? Again, we're not told in the Old Testament. It's just a shadowy figure that one day will come. Well, the third shadowy figure is the suffering servant. In the final part of the book of Isaiah, written about halfway between the time of King David and the time of Jesus, we meet another enigmatic shadowy figure who has a very unusual and unique vocation. He's described simply as the servant of the Lord, but he's known by most as the suffering servant because of the terrible suffering that's predicted for him, particularly in Isaiah 52 and 53. But the strange thing about this servant's suffering is that he suffers so that his people might be spared what they ought to suffer for their sin. I'm just going to read a little bit from Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. They say about this servant, or the Lord says, Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. By his bruises we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's like this servant, a person, is taking on the place that the animal sacrifices sort of had in the temple system in the Day of Atonement. He is bearing the sins of the people. He's bearing the punishment they deserve so they can be spared and be made whole. Who is this suffering servant? Well, it's, it's not clear. But God's obviously doing something through this serv- servant to rescue his people from the consequences of their sin. Somehow through this servant of the Lord, God's going to do something in response to the problems of Genesis 3. Well, there's the three shadowy figures. The final part of the jigsaw is not a person, but it's a promise. Still deep in the Old Testament, God makes a very significant promise to his people. It's the promise of a new covenant. And the significance of this new covenant is that it will deal with the hard heart problem that has beset every human since Adam and Eve. You can see there on your page from Jeremiah 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
No longer will they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The promise here is not just to forgive people's sin, but to so change his people that they'll want to follow him. It's a promise to soften their hard hearts. And you can hear all sorts of echoes there of God's good intentions for his people from the Garden of Eden. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will all know me. Sin will be remembered no more. That's the great promise of the new covenant. But when will this day come? When will this new covenant be established? So what we get as we move through the Old Testament from Genesis three on are these hints these promises that god is going to do something to fulfill his original covenant purposes do something about the problem of sin and its consequences though we don't know when and it's tied up with these shadowy figures of the high priest and his sacrifice the victorious king and his throne the prophetic servant of the lord and his suffering now how these are all going to come together is not clear in the old testament itself they're just shadows of the reality to come And the name of that reality, it's not going to be a surprise to you, is it? Jesus. But how is Jesus and his cross the reality to which these shadows and promises point? Well, that's what we're going to explore over the next few days. I'm going to leave you a few moments just to to stop, think for a moment. There's a space there just to jot down some of the things you've, you've learned, maybe a response you want to make. And then I'm going to close for us in prayer. Since by sin this earth was blighted, God has whispered of his love. Dreams and visions by his prophets breathed of mercy from above. Louder speaks his love in Jesus. Heaven sweetly chants his fame. Earth receives its glorious saviour. Hallelujah to his name. Louder, louder, hallelujah. See the glorious fountain flow. From the midst of heaven proclaim it. Oh, it makes me white as snow. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for your great plan of salvation, climaxing in the death of your Son, Jesus, for us. Take us deeper into this truth this week so that we might love you more. Sing your praises and live our lives to your glory in the shape of the cross. Amen.